Hello, and welcome to Theater Reviews from My Seat. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you my theater experiences from June of 2018. I'm looking forward to sharing my thoughts on Springsteen on Broadway, long-awaited and much-anticipated. Also, from Off-Broadway, plays from the Atlantic Theater Company, the Mint Theater Company, and the Classic Stage Company, and the three items from out of town in Philadelphia, a 24-decade history of popular music, from Chicago and the Looking Glass Theater Company's production of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and a new musical at the Paper Mill Playhouse in Milburn, New Jersey, called Halftime. Let's begin our journey this month with the event piece, The Lost Supper. Sleep No More has been mesmerizing audiences in the McKittrick Hotel for a seemingly never-ending run. That immersive piece is a multi-floor mashup of Macbeth and Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. Follow a character or wander aimlessly through rooms, it's your call. Other special events are presented, such as this year's flight, the personalized diorama of the immigrant crisis. The brand new entertainment is called The Lost Supper, which is billed as an unlocked room, an enigmatic hostess, titillating performances, and tantalizing fare. Chic, surreal, or festive attire is encouraged, darlings. I use the word darling since the welcome email I received before attending was addressed to my darling. You already know whether this entertainment will be your cup of tea. For the young woman sitting at our table, sporting her stylish hat of black feathers with her husband in a bowler, the answer is most definitely yes. For the man at another table in khakis and a sky blue t-shirt who was checking his phone a lot, well, not so much. For me, definitely yes. Like all performances I've attended here, this one is hyper-stylized from lighting to costuming. This one, however, incorporates food as part of the show. You get an appetizer and an entree choice. Think surrealistic dinner party interspersed with period songs or creatively executed performance pieces. What period? With pantomime this smile-inducing, who cares? The food is fine. The environment is the real, real draw. One waiter performer recognized me as Iron Joe Jaw, the famous boxer. Six tables of ten means there's a nice performer-to-diner ratio, but not if you're the t-shirt guy. For everyone else, a tantalizing supper to remember. Now let's travel to Philadelphia for a 24-decade history of popular music, part one, 1776 to 1896. In the fall of 2016, Taylor Mack brought his show to St. Anne's Warehouse of Brooklyn. 24-decade history of popular music was billed as a 24-hour marathon in which every decade of American music would be presented, each for one hour. Without any more knowledge, I declined to subject myself to that adventure. The rave reviews followed. In 2017, this work was one of the three finalists for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Luckily, the show is being presented in two 12-hour installments over two weekends at the Kimmel Center for the Performing Arts in Philadelphia. First and foremost, Taylor Mack is a drag performance artist, and this is a drag show filled with all the glitter and bawdiness you would expect. But it is so much more than that. A 24 decade is also history lesson, a musical jukebox, a political manifesto, 
and a group improvisation exercise all doused in gorgeous lighting and outrageous costumes. Mr. Mack opens the show with an apology to Native Americans, followed by a discussion of Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense. For the young people, he helpfully instructs that a pamphlet is smaller than a book and larger than a blog. How does he define government? The example used is nudie baby. A four-year-old likes to run around the house naked shouting, nudie baby, nudie baby. It's cute and funny. One time at the mall, the child takes off his clothes and runs around shouting, nudie baby, nudie baby. He is then captured by his parents who forcibly put the clothes back on while he cries and sadly wails, nudie baby, nudie baby. That's government, insists Mr. Mack. Who knew Yankee Doodle Dandy was originally a song the British used to mock the American colonists, suggesting they were low-class men lacking in masculinity? That's really saying something coming from the British, says Taylor Mack. The history goes on and on, from the revolution to the temperance movement, from Native American genocide to the Oklahoma land rush, from abolitionists to reconstruction, and from the Trail of Tears to the robber barons of the late 19th century. The scope of this piece is enormous, the politics unabashedly liberal. From the lyrics to Johnny Comes Marching Home Again, the men will cheer and the boys will shout, the ladies they will all turn out, and will all feel gay when Johnny comes marching home. Yes, it's history, and yes, it's hilarious. But seriousness lurks behind every eyelash, deepening the entire experience. I didn't know my old Kentucky home written by Stephen Foster was a minstrel song, which, up until recently, contained the lyric, There comes a time when the darkies have to part. Mr. Mack is on stage for nearly the entire 12 hours and sings throughout. He is riveting, intense, outraged, and hugely entertaining. He is celebrating freedom. He is also commenting on America and asking us to consider what its values were are, and should be. For him, nostalgia is the last refuge of the racist. The performance is colossal. I sat in my seat and remained glued to the spectacle while being firmly engrossed in its messaging. I cannot wait to see the second half this Saturday. Surely, we'll hear more about politics, mixing with religion and oppression of minorities, as Mr. Mack continues deconstructing the, quote, heteronormative narrative and colonialism unquote, history of America. Before we get to part two, let's discuss a few other shows that I saw between those two Saturdays. Next up, Stage Life. Stage Life is a play that is described as a rousing celebration of lives well-lived in and about the theater. I can confidently state that rousing is not achieved. Conceived and adapted by Martin Tackle, this piece takes quotes, short stories, letters, and reminiscences to attempt to convey the spirit of those who create live theater. Oscar Wilde, Mark Twain, Shelley Winters, and Thornton Wilder all make five-second appearances. In between, there are scenes such as the class, where we watch actors in training. Are you hearing the car as yourself or as a character? The first time it is asked, it's sort of mildly amusing. After that, it's just tedious. Six actors play all of the parts here. The most interesting section was the Macbeth murder mystery adapted from a James Thurber story. 
Unfortunately, the evening as a whole is a fairly directionless hodgepodge. More tellingly, the audience was clearly not responding to the material. There is an idea here to celebrate the creative process and the myriad of interesting characters both on stage and off. I'm not exactly sure who this show is for, but it is not me. Stage life is inside baseball, so far inside that it's hard to see anything at all. A swing and a miss. Now to Broadway and the fabulous revival of Travesties from the Roundabout Theatre Company. Tom Stoppard's Travesties opened on Broadway in 1975 after premiering in London the year before and went on to win the Tony Award for Best Play. This revival is also a transfer from across the pond and stars a highly comical Tom Hollander. He plays Henry Carr, a British man who reminisces about his time in Zurich in 1917 during the First World War. Three important personalities were living there at the time. James Joyce, writing Ulysses, Tristan Zara, founding the Dada art movement, and Lenin, plotting the communist revolution. All three are skewered mercilessly. Our narrator's memories, however, are dimmer due to age and senility. The story, like our memory, goes around and around and is never quite reliable. Apparently, Mr. Carr was also in a production of Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest during this time. As a result, his reminiscences are, shall we say, structurally influenced by that play. The trick to enjoying this play is to let it come right at you and not get hung up on specific intellectual factoids that did have some audience members cackling. This production is rich in excellent performances in an extremely funny, high-octane staging with superb physical hijinks competing with over-the-top verbal wordplay. As directed by Patrick Marber, Travesties is an unfussy, intellectually stimulating joyride. There's a little cheat sheet handed out before the show with a few fun facts about these men. If you don't know what Dada is, you will be helped. If you know even a smidge, you will laugh and laugh. That laughter is largely due to an exceptionally strong cast, notably Seth Numerick playing Tristan Zara. His performance is physically loose yet precisely calibrated. He's in love, and not only with himself and his art. Somehow he was overlooked for a Tony nomination again, the last time being his extraordinary work as the lead in 2012's Golden Boy, a completely different performance and equally terrific. I have to add that Sarah Topham and Scarlett Strahlin were hilarious in their roles as Cecily and Gwendolyn. It's not necessary to know that these two characters are both named after and reinterpret a scene from Oscar Wilde's play. That's icing on a fairly delicious cake. What is art? What is good art? What does art do for society? Travesty the word is defined as a false, absurd, or distorted representation of something. Travesty's the play is definitely absurd and highly entertaining. And now let's talk about the celebrated Springsteen on Broadway. Important background information required to put this review in context. I was born in New Jersey and was in middle school when Born to Run was released. Bruce was listened to and worshipped. I saw two different tours, The River, 1981 South Bend, Indiana, Go Irish, and The Rising Tour, 2002 Madison Square Garden in New York City. Along with the East Street Band, 
Bruce Springsteen was one of the greatest, most entertaining rock concert performers I have ever seen. To be clear, I would put myself in the category of general fan. I don't travel in the online circles that discuss the playlists at every single performance. That is the level of intense devotion and huge expectations for those lucky enough to have tickets for Springsteen on Broadway. If you come to this show expecting genius, you will be rewarded. If you come expecting a feel-good sing-along concert while you continually keep trying to swig white wine out of a long-ago drained plastic cup, that's the seat next to me, then you might not get the experience you imagined. Springsteen on Broadway is exactly what the title promises. Bruce Springsteen, not as he would be in an arena, but in a musical he wrote and directed. At 68 years old, it is a career retrospective for sure, but intimately rendered in exquisitely detailed poetic storytelling. Yes, he performs his music, but it's the book of the show that is spellbinding. He covers everything from personal relationships to career development to the symbolic tree in his front lawn as a child. All of this is riveting, gorgeously written, and exceptionally performed. Mr. Springsteen elevated his brand of rock and roll to the top of the music business. In this production, he has now elevated himself into some kind of philosophical priest, perhaps a nod to the Catholic upbringing. What really struck me was how he has transformed the depth of book writing for a Broadway jukebox musical. This show is not a piece of throwaway fluff like Summer, the Donna Summer musical. Instead, the show is a solo piece by one of the most thoughtful, open, imperfect, real, and talented musicians ever. I can imagine this solo piece working for other actors in the future. The monologues are that good. It will be impossible for me to ever hear Born in the USA the same way again. Having seen Bruce himself make this scripted affair sound like casual, off-the-cuff conversation is a testament to the brilliant staging. Springsteen on Broadway is a very, very, very expensive ticket. Isn't it nice that the show exceeds expectations on every level? Next, I visited the off-Broadway troupe, the new group, and the play, Peace for Mary Frances. Lois Smith is an 87-year-old actress who always seems to be working. In recent seasons, I've seen her in Jordan Harrison's Marjorie Prime and Annie Baker's John, both excellent plays. Marjorie Prime was also made into a movie last year. In Peace for Mary Frances, she plays a widow who is hooked up to an oxygen tank nearing the end of her days. Presumably, the peace that Mary Frances wants is death, because the family members and assorted caregivers here are more than slightly annoying. The piece that the audience wants is for this overlong drama to finally end. This play was written by Lily Thorne, and it's her professional playwriting debut. There are so many issues thrown into the theatrical blender that the situation is beyond even remotely believable. Squabbling sisters, one with a drug addiction, the other struggling to make ends meet. That's okay, I guess, but since her daughter is a television star, the poor storyline is bizarre. 
Our starlet has a sister with a newborn that gets carried around the stage for more scenes than is advisable or even reasonably probable. Caregivers offer advice while trying to pretend this family isn't totally crackers. After the terrible and also boring Good for Otto, the new group season, with the exception of Jerry Springer the musical, is hugely disappointing. The pace of direction here by Lila Neubenbauer is glacial. The scenic design by Dane Laffrey is too large for the stage and results in clumsy movement, notably in the bedroom. The actors try hard, but there are too many plot contrivances and far too many scenes to make this drama effective in any way. We do get to see Lois Smith talk to her dead husband near the end of Peace for Mary Frances, and yet another revelation from the family's seemingly unendless catalog of mini-dramas. Miss Smith's character received extra morphine to help her ease her struggles toward the end. The audience, however, just remained numb, physically squirming in their seats, while hoping that this really bad production would end. On a much happier note, let's go back to Philadelphia for a 24-decade history of popular music, part two, 1896 to the present. For the second Saturday in a row, I traveled back to Philadelphia for the next and final 12 hours of Taylor Mack's politicized, gender-bending, as far from conservative evangelical as possible, 246-song opus, a 24-decade history of popular music. Right from the start, we learned that this show is, quote, a radical fairy realness ritual sacrifice, unquote. Mr. Mack points out that we don't have to agree with him as it's not Oprah, it's not the GOP. The show immediately heads into the crowded Jewish tenements of the early 20th century and a beautiful version of Shine on Harvest Moon. By the time we get to the 1960s, things are so outrageous that his persona is akin to Baby Jane from the Betty Davis movie playing Jackie O, President Kennedy's wife, at a beach party. The superbly conceptualized costume designs are by Machine Dazzle, and dazzle they do. The show traverses a century of wars, both between governments and between oppressors and the oppressed. The Cold War is hilariously staged with giant inflatables as the two sides face off to determine who is bigger. At the end of this musical extravaganza, we are told, and it seems logical, that no other show in the history of theater has a roller derby butt-showing stage manager. How you react to that admission is likely how you will react to this combination of artistic empire expansion protest meeting and sledgehammering of the heteronormative narrative of America. Not that his audience wasn't on board, but he does warn that our inherent white supremacy instincts might just start freaking out because all those people are having so much fun. There were two moments in part two which left a big impression. First, was the not-so-subtle abuse shoveled toward conservative NRA activist Ted Nugent. Taylor Mack decided to turn his song, Snakeskin Cowboy, into an onstage gay prom dance. The second was the depiction of white flight out of America's cities. All of the white people seated in the center orchestra were sent to the sides of the theater. The people of color were then moved into those seats. And if you didn't like it, Mr. Mack had a safe word for you. 
It was Exit. The Bob Dylan song, A Hard Rain's Are Gonna Fall, perhaps hit me like never before. I met one man who was wounded in love. I met another man who was wounded in hatred. And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rains are gonna fall. By the time the line, where black is the color, where none is the number, is sung, I felt overwhelmed. This show was closer to capturing a feeling of spiritual community than any of the endlessly recited religious babble from my youth. Mr. Mack did ask his audience to think about what the show meant to them, what reactions, both positive and negative, that we might have. So many come to mind from the singularly brilliant and vividly indulgent exercise in creative expression. So here's one of my takeaways. Why would I ever want to be part of a religion that won't bake cakes for people in love? I am certain I will never see anything like a 24-decade history of popular music ever again. Bravo to Taylor Mac. From Philadelphia to Chicago and the Looking Glass Theater Company's presentation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Coincidences can be a surprising treat. I decided to take in a production of Jules Verne's classic tale, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Admittedly, my familiarity with the story was hazy at best. I remember a submarine and a huge menacing calamari from the movie. Also, the completely idiotic Disney World ride which was dismantled long ago. I saw this production on a Wednesday night and got on a plane Thursday night for a wedding celebration over the weekend. Congratulations, Courtney and Matt. I'm currently reading All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. The book takes place in France during World War II. One of the main characters is a blind girl who reads books in Braille. She is given 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea around page 400. Both books begin to reflect the realities of warfare. The first mate, she reads, struggled furiously with other monsters which were climbing up sides of the Nautilus. The crew were flailing away with their axes. Ned, Conceal, and I dug our weapons into their soft bodies. A violent odor of musk filled the air. When reading, I decided I liked this play more than I did when I was sitting in the theater. Nemo is portrayed by Kareem Bandiali, returning the character to its Indian roots after the story had long ago been whitewashed. Nemo's grand adventure involves sinking warships and collecting sunken treasure. Is he a hero or a villain? I'm not able to answer that question. Mr. Bandiali's performance was big, but the long thematic speeches in Act Two seemed excessively melodramatic. While the script adaptation here was only semi-successful, the production values were quite high and cleverly theatrical. The set initially looked like a ship before morphing into a submarine. When certain characters are tossed into the sea, they are floating as if suspended in water. Our giant squid even makes a fun puppet appearance. Ned Land's portrayal of the Canadian harpoonist Walter Briggs was particularly fine and felt period perfect. The spirit of this famous adventure was there. A little too talking and preachy, this adaptation may have been too faithful to the tone of the book, resulting in some dull patches. I'm glad I saw it, however, as it paired beautifully with my reading the next day. And back we go to Off-Broadway, New York, and the Atlantic Theatre Company, 
the great leap. Basketball is the subject from which we explore the evolution of China from 1971 until the Tiananmen Square Massacre in 1989. A foul-mouthed, basketball coach from the University of San Francisco travels to Beijing during the reign of Mao Zedong, the chairman of the Communist Party of China from its establishment in 1949 until his death in 1976. In 1972, President Nixon was welcomed, which signaled the opening of China to the world. Right before that moment in history, the Great Leap invents a meeting between the American coach and a Chinese one. What advice is given? An important one is to get taller players. A tongue-in-cheek joke. In 1989, these coaches will meet again in a game to take place in China during the protests. The play structure goes back and forth in time to accommodate the seemingly never-ending cliches. Playwright Lauren Yi combines a sports story, a soap opera, and a commentary on the changes in China during that period. We see them manifest themselves in its dutiful servant, Wen Chang, the coach played by B.D. Wong, this performance is interesting, considering the character has far too many connect-the-dots contrivances to convey. For me, the most successful portrayer was the American coach Saul, played by Ned Eisenberg. As written, the character is far from fully developed, and also a hoary cliché, but the swagger and obnoxiousness of Saul butting against the repressive nature of a communist culture seems steep in realism. The Great Leap was directed by Taibi Magar, who has been brilliantly creative in recent seasons in such productions as Ars Nova's Underground Railroad Game. Underground Railroad Game is currently still on national tour. I'm not sure, though, for The Great Leap, this overall piece was salvageable, even for a great director. The next play we're going to talk about is Conflict. If you want to see what outstanding direction of a play means, Get yourself to the Mint Theater's production of Conflict. Jen Thompson has orchestrated a masterful revival of this superb 1925 story by Miles Mallison. The Mint Theater's mission is to rediscover lost or neglected works and has been on an impressive tear of truly outstanding productions lately. That list includes last year's Yours Unfaithfully by the same playwright. Conflict is near the top of anything they have ever staged. Within the scope of an off-Broadway budget, Miss Thompson has managed to present a gorgeous-to-look-at physical production inhabited by a stellar cast. It certainly helps that the play is excellent and politically topical, conservatives versus liberals. But this drama has been elevated by some of the finest pacing I can remember. The silent pauses are as extraordinarily tense and as important as the spoken words. When all of these elements come together as richly as in this production, that is directorial genius. A bravo is well-deserved. Conflict is billed as a love story. The Lady Dare Bellington is a wealthy young woman involved with Major Sir Ronald Clive. They are played by Jesse Shelton and Henry Clark. The time is early 1920s London, at the time when the Labour Party was becoming the primary challengers to the Conservatives. In this play, personal relationships, political persuasions, women's attitudes, and her place in society all converge. When you throw in the down-on-his-luck character of Tom Smith, portrayed by Jeremy Beck, 
the tinder sets fire and never diminishes. Act 3, Scene 1 takes place in a bed-sitting room in some London lodgings. Amelia White expertly portrays Mrs. Robinson, the owner, who has rented a room to Mr. Smith. The scene between Tom and the Lady Dare is one of the finest pieces of acting and directing I expect to be fortunate enough to see this year. The chemistry between them is, incredibly, both seismic and restrained. Miss Shelton and Mr. Beck are superb, as is the entire cast. Additive to this playgoing experience is the Mint's typically excellent set design here by John McDermott. All of the creative contributions are memorable. The costumes by Martha Halley are ideal. The production is bathed in great lighting by Mary Louise Geiger. This is top-notch theater. The ending lines of conflict are urgently important to be heard in today's America. Yes, conflict is about opposing political views. The play is also about family, love, personal growth, apathy, birthright, and beliefs. Undoubtedly one of this year's great productions, The Mint Theater's Conflict, directed by Jen Thompson, is not to be missed. I sincerely hope that regional theaters everywhere grab this one now that it has been rediscovered. Let's take in a new musical presented at the Paper Mill Playhouse in Millburn, New Jersey. It's called Halftime. Halftime is a new musical based upon the 2008 documentary Gotta Dance about the debut of the New Jersey Nets basketball team's first ever senior hip-hop dance squad. Twelve women and one man were followed from the audition period to the performance. This stage adaptation does not frolic in the fountain of youth, but instead wallows in a pool of formulaic musical comedy blandness with largely unmemorable songs. There are, however, quite a few high points to discuss. Georgia Engel is a five-time Emmy nominee for the Mary Tyler Moore Show and Everybody Loves Raymond. Over the past decade, I have seen her repeatedly excel on stage in plays such as Will Eno's Middletown and Annie Baker's John. As Mrs. Tottendale in The Drowsy Chaperone, she was a superlative ditzy clown. Miss Engel plays Dorothy, a ditzy kindergarten teacher who has developed a passion for hip-hop, having confiscated music from her inattentive students. As her alter ego, Dottie, she becomes the reluctant team leader, mic-dropping and all. Her performance is fresh, funny, and probably more poignant due to the fact that she walks with a cane and looks like a hip replacement is weeks away. At the curtain call, she oddly had the second-to-last bow before Donna McKechnie. While her Tony Award-winning turn as Cassie in a chorus line was referenced, perhaps over-referenced, her part was significantly smaller than Miss Engel's and truly one-dimensional, either as written or as acted, or both. Andre de Shields originated the role of the Wiz in 1975. Here, he delivers everything from his trademark big personality to smooth, emotionally fine singing and dancing in the show's best number, The Prince of Swing. Mr. DeShields and Ms. Engel nicely underplayed their scenes together so the relationship growth was organic. Haven Burton portrayed the coach who needs to get this motley crew ready for the big time. Her voice is big and beautiful, clearly demonstrating why she has previously been an understudy for Sutton Foster. Ms. Burton's performance was so relaxed and seemingly effortless that she held the whole show together. 
As Camilla, the sex-crazed caricature Latina, Nancy Tickerton nonetheless killed with her big salsa dance number, making it impossible to believe she was and is a senior. Wrapping seniors based on a true story is a fun idea for an updated take on the old-fashioned let's-put-on-a-show backstage story. Reveling in these performers getting a chance to steal the spotlight late in their careers adds a nostalgic bonus. Halftime maybe gets halfway there. Directed by Jerry Mitchell, the show had Broadway aspirations. How to get all the way there? Cut the mediocre songs and spend more time developing characters with dimensions. And now a musical revival really worth talking about. The Classic Stage Company's presentation of Carmen Jones. Oscar Hammerstein adapted the book and lyrics from Bizet's opera Carmen into a successful Broadway musical which premiered in 1943. Later made into a movie starring Dorothy Dandridge, she became the first African-American woman nominated for lead actress at the Academy Awards. Carmen Jones was reset from southern Spain to the American South, where the title character works in a war factory that manufactures parachutes. She remained a fiery temptress. Director John Doyle and his classic stage company have revived this piece in a bare-bones staging. The level of excellence is staggering. Anika Noni Rose is a sultry and seductive Carmen, the textbook definition of a classic femme fatale. The unfortunate target of her latest desire is army man Joe, portrayed by Clifton Duncan. Lindsay Roberts plays Cindy Lou, the girl from home who simply cannot compete with the passionate and erotic bombshell that is Carmen. All three perfectly inhabit these meaty roles. Every movement, every facial expression, every word has meaning and purpose. Their singing is dramatic and gorgeous, connecting beautifully with Bizet's famous music. The audience surrounds the action on all four sides. The sound design by Dan Moses Schreier is effective in turning a cast of 10 into a stunning, full-throttle operatic musical. Similar to the staging of Mr. Doyle's other shows, this one has just a few props amidst a minimalistic set design. All of these performers expertly transform a nearly empty stage into an atmospheric, living, breathing tale filled with emotions and suffering. Carmen Jones is a glorious presentation of a theatrical masterpiece and the first revival in New York since its premiere 75 years ago. This grand achievement should be headed uptown to Broadway. That's it for this month's episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month, we'll be talking about the New York Musical Festival, the incubator for new musicals, and we'll cover the entire festival, amongst other on- and off-Broadway experiences. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email to theaterreviewsformyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsformyseat.com.